people doesn't realize that it's everywhere. Like babies died and nobody talk about it. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by the Jerusalem Foundation and the Times of Israel. Our episode today is part two of A Life After Death, which tells the story of Gal Zeichner and her 11-month-old son, Noach. Now, if you haven't heard part one, I suggest you stop right now, go listen to it, and only then return to this one. As you'll recall, these two episodes deal with sudden death and grief. So, please take that into account. You can read more in the episode notes. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Okay, we're picking up from where we left off last time. Here is actress Nicole Raviv reading Gal's story. Act 3, Yellow. When someone dies, 
there are all kinds of things you have to take care of. You have to organize a funeral and the burial and then orchestrate a whole shiva. You have to notify everyone and cancel all your meetings and appointments. Basically, you have to stop short while the whole world keeps on going. And when a kid dies, this all becomes even more complicated. Noach, my 11-month-old baby boy, fell asleep during nap time at daycare and never woke up. An ICU ambulance rushed him to the hospital where they declared him dead. The police demanded that we do an autopsy and we didn't have enough time or knowledge to decide whether that was something we actually wanted. We were told that if we refused, they'd take the matter to court. Michael and I hoped the autopsy would shed some light on what had happened to our baby. So we agreed. But it didn't shed any light. There were no answers. And so, two days after we left Noah at the hospital, his body was released, together with the coroner's report. It simply stated that the baby had been, quote, cared for and well-kempt. Then came the gruesome question of what to do with the corpse. Almost immediately after seeing Noah wrapped in a bag in the chilled, stainless steel morgue at the Abu Kabir Institute of Forensic Medicine, we began thinking about how and where we would bury him. I've never liked stones and kind of wanted to cremate him, but Michael was opposed to the idea. We ended up compromising on a regular burial, but with no religious service. Since we obviously hadn't planned for any of this to happen, we didn't have enough time to conduct an extensive market survey. And turns out that secular burial grounds in Israel are few and far between. Even in Tel Aviv, perhaps the most liberal city in the entire country, there are no secular cemeteries. There's an option of being buried in the neighboring city of Cholon, but there's no children's section there. We tried talking to nearby kibbutzim, but they told us that they don't bury children. So how on earth does one find a final resting place for an infant? After an exhausting search, we located a secular cemetery in Be'er Sheva that was willing to take us. Just make sure you get a small coffin, the gravedigger said over the phone. We were silent the entire way down south. Michael's cousin drove, and Michael's mom sat in the passenger seat. Michael and I, like a bride and a groom, sat in the back, holding hands and staring out the window. We cried when no one was looking, and every now and then, hugged each other tight. We got to the cemetery before anyone else, waited around for the ambulance with Noah's body to arrive, and then went into the funeral parlor. I handed Michael a favorite toy to put inside the miniature coffin and decided not to look at Noah myself. I wasn't sure I could handle it, so I stepped outside. Standing in the courtyard with Michael's mom, I heard an electric drill close the coffin with my baby's body inside of it. That's the moment that made everything feel real. 
Michael and I never got married. We never had a big celebration with all our friends and family. We're just not the kind of people who like big crowds or lots of attention and don't really understand the need for people to party at a wedding hall and stuff themselves with burekas. So, in a way, Noach's funeral was our wedding. Minus the burekas, that is. Before long, everyone showed up at that dusty cemetery on the outskirts of Be'er Sheva. Family members, Michael's high school teacher and his army friends, colleagues past and present. And just like a bride, I pranced around between them, whispering into everyone's ears, good vibes, good vibes. Just keep up the good vibes. I couldn't have them break down, not on my watch, not because of my tragedy. Good vibes, I told each and every one of them, like a mantra. I wanted to take care of them. After all, this was my event. Funerals, like weddings, require preparation, especially secular ones that don't have a set script and aren't led by a rabbi. Michael and I chose to play songs so that we wouldn't have to talk that much. I guess we couldn't quite find the words to describe what we were feeling. We made sure there were enough water bottles for everyone, and we ordered 200 white and silver balloons that we wanted to release into the air the moment Noah was lowered into the ground. The funeral began. First Michael read a poem, then Eric Clapton sang about heaven, and we all started walking towards the assigned plot. Each person held a balloon, treading in the sort of silence that only a child's funeral can produce. We walked past rows of empty burial plots, all awaiting the bodies of other young kids. There are no trees or plants in the children's section and the end-of-February sun lit up the yellow desert as we crowded around the open grave. Somehow, I found the strength to talk about his birth, while Coldplay's song Yellow played in the background. I told everyone that this was the song I sang to him as they stitched me back together after the C-section, and that now, with the very same words, I was saying goodbye to the boy I had birthed. Everyone released their balloons. As they floated up into the clear sky and towards the sun, it seemed to me as though little sperm were racing toward a big yellow egg. Everyone looked up, and I looked at them looking up. I stepped aside, lit a joint, and inhaled, letting the smoke fill my lungs and stop my tears. I stole this little moment for myself before people began approaching me, and I had to put my smile back on. Many of them said it was a really special ceremony, that they're used to looking down at the ground during funerals, and that this time they got to look up at the sky. Good vibes, they said. And in the background, look at the stars. Look how they shine for you. And everything you do. Yeah, they were all yellow. When I die, I want to be cremated, and I want my ashes to be scattered in the streets of Tel Aviv. 
all the things that you do. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, we're back with Gal Zeichner's story about her 11-month-old son, Noach. Can I see a picture of Noach? I don't, I don't have. You don't have? I, uh, after he died, I uh, delete all the picture of my form. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a picture of Noach on the wall in, in the house? No. No? No. Act four, mother of one. Here, once again is actress Nicole Raviv. I never thought I'd be a mom. My whole life, kids seemed like a nuisance. I focused on how energy-sapping they are, what a time commitment they require, how much they cost, and how much freedom you can have without them. When I was 20, my doctor told me that I had polycystic ovaries and that I'd need help getting pregnant. Rather than being sad, I celebrated this news. Who wants to deal with the hassles of a pregnancy anyway, I thought. Who in her right mind wants to go through all that? As I grew older, I learned that this desire, or lack thereof, has a name. Voluntary childlessness. While my girlfriends all set out in search of their soulmates, the men who'd give them children and a family, I just didn't feel the same urge. I wanted to be free. And then I met Michael. On our very first date, he told me he wanted to have kids. We were sitting on my roof on Borochov Street in Tel Aviv, and he said that I was really nice and that I might as well know now that if something were to come of this and we had a son, his name would be David. I didn't think there'd be a second date. So I said, okay. But there was a second date. And a third. Then we fell in love. And slowly, the relationship became serious. One night, two and a half years later, Michael woke me up, all drunk and high, and mumbled, I love you, and I want you to be the mother of my children. Half asleep, I asked him if I should stop taking the pill. And he said yes. And that's how it was. I really don't know what changed inside of me. Maybe it was that I saw something in Michael that I hadn't ever seen in anyone else before. Someone I'd want as a father for my children. I saw in him everything I believed was important. And I knew that if I brought kids into the world with him, he wouldn't abandon them. I knew I would never be alone. A month later, when I missed my period and the pregnancy test was negative, we called my gynecologist to book an appointment. I wanted her to calm me down and tell me everything would be okay. 
When we walked into her office in one of those tall buildings on the border between Bnei Brak and Ramat Gan, she gave me a hug. She asked tons of questions, performed all kinds of tests, and sent me home with a long to-do list. The goal was simple. Ovulate. I began taking clomiphene, but for months the lining of my uterus wouldn't thicken, my follicles wouldn't grow, and all the exams and syringes didn't prove fruitful. Every period I got crushed me, and there were days I just couldn't get out of bed. My appointments at the fertility clinic were all the same. The nurse would check my follicles and, without a hint of sympathy or compassion, announce that my egg was too small. She'd send me home, and month after month, I'd take the elevator down to the parking garage, stung by yet another failure. Every month, my doctor prescribed a new dose of hormones. I couldn't stop crying and felt exhausted all the time. And mainly, I couldn't believe I was doing all this for a child. Drowning in both hormones and disappointment, I felt alone. Those long months of treatments were an ebb and flow of tears. I was constantly offended by everything and everyone. Michael was accommodating and soothing, but other than him, I basically hated everybody. My friends, my family, my colleagues. I just wanted to be pregnant already, and I had no patience or energy for anything else. שלום אוהב לכם, אנחנו כאן במשדר מיוחד מלווים את היום הראשון למבצע צוק איתן. Ten months into my treatment, Operation Protective Edge broke out in Gaza. I was at home when the siren went off, and I began weeping uncontrollably. Growing up in Nahria, we had Katyusha rockets rain down on us pretty regularly. On the Gazan border, where I had served in the army, Kassam rockets were the norm, but it was the siren in Tel Aviv that broke me. I was flushed with anxiety and wondered why the hell I wanted to bring a child into this terrible world. Everything felt immense and intense, but my eggs were finally ready and my uterine lining was finally thick enough. I did the insemination procedure and flew to Berlin with Michael to escape the two wars, the war in Gaza and the war for a baby. When David was a year old, we decided to start trying to get pregnant again. We knew from experience that it would take time, and I obviously wasn't getting any younger. I went back on clomiphene, got my period, and then, just like that, it worked. We couldn't believe it. Pure joy. As soon as Noah was born, we already knew we'd want another one. By then, we both dreamt of a big family, one that makes a lot of noise and makes your heart sing. Michael wanted to start trying again once Noah turned one, but I hoped we'd wait a little bit longer this time around. We agreed that we'd talk about it after his first birthday. A month after Noah died, we went back to my gynecologist. She was absolutely determined to get us pregnant. She went over all the statistics, examined my follicles, 
analyzed the lining, and decided she'd send us to a specialist. We drove to his clinic in a strip mall in Yavne, where, once again, he reviewed all the measurements and medical history. After asking us a million questions, he came up with a game plan and told us to return as soon as I got my next period. Mikhail was abroad when my next period arrived, and I had to drive to Yavne by myself. The doctor checked my follicles, prescribed injections, sent me to the nurse for a quick tutorial, and booked my next appointment. As I headed down the stairs to the parking lot, I didn't feel any excitement. I got into my car and buckled up, but I couldn't start the engine. I knew I had enough gas in the tank and knew the keypad code by heart, but I just couldn't start the damn car. Michael was away. Pickup at David's kindergarten was in less than an hour, and I couldn't start the engine. I called a friend. Help me, I begged. I'm in Yavne, and my car won't start. He asked me to turn the switch so that he could listen to the sound the engine made. He listened, and then told me to go back into the strip mall and get myself a cup of coffee. When I returned to the car a few minutes later, the engine started. I guess I was just anxious. Every night, Mikhail and I would do an injection ceremony. He would try to inject me, I'd get annoyed, and would ultimately inject myself instead. That became our routine, our ritual. I would then arrive at my checkups full of hormones and in a bad mood that reflected the bad state of my follicles. I would cry in front of the insensitive nurse, who would remind me that I cried at my last appointment too. Mikhail and I had sex because we had to, because we had grieved enough, because I was full of hormones, and because we hoped that maybe, like with Noah, it would just work. I cried uncontrollably every single time. After the second round of injections, my follicles looked a bit better, and we decided to inseminate. I called my doctor to see if she was available, and she squeezed me in apologizing to all her other patients in the waiting room. Michael and I rushed in, she injected me, and then left us alone for 15 minutes. It was just the two of us, and I was full of tears, full of fears, and full of hope. When I got my period a few weeks later, my heart shattered into a million pieces. A third month of injections began. My follicles looked much better, but it was a holiday and I couldn't find a doctor to inseminate me. Desperate, I turned to the clinic manager, a man I'd never met, and he did the procedure. Two weeks later, I got my period and couldn't get out of bed. I started to wonder whether getting pregnant was the right thing to do. And then I decided to stop. When Noah died, Everyone around us suddenly became a grief expert and insisted that we should have another kid, as if it would replace Noah, as if it would heal the pain. But I didn't want a replacement. I knew that no matter how many additional kids I might have, nothing could ever fill the gaping hole in my heart. I'd erupt inside with each one of those comments, but I never let it show. I'd remain silent and think to myself, how do they know what we should do? When were they ever in this much pain? 
I called my mother and told her I had stopped the fertility treatments. I said that I didn't know what to do anymore, that I wanted a kid, but not the battle for one. I said that I felt bad for David, and that I'd become a cranky mother who can't stop crying. But more than anything, I told her, I just didn't want to spend the next few years trying to have another child. And my mom, maybe for the first time ever, said exactly what I needed to hear. Do what you need to do. Don't listen to anyone else. So I decided, together with Michael, that David will be an only child. I have one living child, and so it will be. Nicole Raviv, reading Gal Zeichner's story. אבל אני כן מאוד מאוד משתדלת שלא נהיה בית שסביב המוות וכל הזמן עצובים. רגע, סדר אני אומר. I'm trying not to, do, to be a house around death and everybody said and... Are you guys a happy family? Um, I think uh, we are... Yeah, I guess we are, we are happy. We have a very busy life. Um, And I think we're talking about everything, so it's help. But we're trying to be happy. I think it's a long way to go to be happy. Right. Gal Zeichner. There's one more act of Gal's story. A surprising one that is, in many ways, an ominous prequel to everything we've heard in these last two episodes. It will be available soon for our Apple subscribers and monthly donors. So, become a subscriber. Not only is it a way to support our show, but it will unlock additional content. Extras, unaired interviews, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and, in this case, Gal's bonus story. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Adina Karpuch, Jamal Rishik, Yael Ben-Khorin, Mitch Ginsberg, Hadas Kidron, Jennifer Cutler, Alexandra Muller, and Rotem Tzin. Sela Weisblum is our sound engineer. Ross Bordeaux, Noah Wolfson, and Gideon Bialkin are our production interns. Zev Levi scored and sound designed this episode, with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Alma Elliot Hoffman and the rest of the team at Haaretz, where Gal's pieces were first published. Mitch Ginsberg translated them into English. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can and should also check out our home at timesofisrael.com slash podcasts. And of course, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, the platform formerly known as Twitter, all under Israel Story. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Amishi Harman, wishing us all a shana tova umetuka, a happy, healthy, and calm new year. And in the meantime, shalom shalom and yalla bye. Night,
רוחות מבלי לראות את השמיים, מבלי לראות כחול של ים, ירוק של עץ, מבלי לשמוע מנגינות יפות כמו פעם, מבלי לראות את הדברים כמו שהם. אני נושם, אני חבוק בזרועותייך. אני רואה בך בית חם ומשפחה. ואור בהיר בחלונות. שאת פותחת, אני חופשי, אך אין לי מנוחה. ילדים קטנים, ילדים גדולים, ילדים טובים. או ילדים רעים. את יודעת, אימא, כולנו ילדים של החיים. ילדים רעים, את יודעת 